0: Hello, Nathan here from the Journey Further podcast, a show where we learn from the people and businesses who are on a mission to do things differently. Ever since I first ate in one of their restaurants, I've been slightly obsessed with Dishoom. When it comes to the richness of their brand, their vibrant storytelling, their obsession with authenticity, you can tell there's something much deeper there than merely a group of nice restaurants. So for this episode, it was a pleasure to speak with Shamil Thakra, co-founder of Dishoom, about the guiding principles which they've used to grow the business so far and which will undoubtedly shape its future in years to come. I hope you enjoy the show. Here goes. Shamil, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Nathan, it's nice to be here on the podcast.
0: Shamil, I'll kick things off by asking you the question which we start every discussion with, and that is, what's the wrong you want to write?
1: It's a good question, Nathan. Um, I I think in in business, the wrong we're trying to write is that you can't scale and deepen quality at the same time. And I sort of um, a pause as I say that. Uh, because it's um, it's almost so ingrained in business thinking. I mean, I'm sure there are businesses that do, do it very well, but but for us in our industry, it was sort of ingrained in the business thinking that I didn't even know it was an assumption. I mean, it took a while to sort of find out. And for us, I think any success that we've been fortunate to have is is because of that principle. Is it In, in a way, I can sum up the principle rather than the wrong, what, what are we trying to do? It's that it's deepen and don't dilute. And we use deepen, full stop, don't dilute as, as our sort of guiding principle. And it served us very, very well um and I, I think that those three words probably sum up the the way the way we try and do business
0: and you've obviously you the current business you've been working in for for about 10 years now Dishoom. Yeah. when did this deep and don't dilute start to form as a, as a guiding principle for you guys
1: um i think there was there was a sort of evolution to it in a way um and and my background is is a you know i've been cursed or blessed with a, a good business background and a business education. And uh, I, I was at business school and worked in strategy consulting for a while. And and I guess when you when you leave those disciplines or that that sort of training or experience, um, there's a couple of things which I think are very orthodox. What one is business is a PL. So fundamentally the, the point of a business is a PL and everything comes back to the PL. Um, and and that's the measuring tool, that's the ruler that you use and everything is driven by that. And, and I, I don't think that's true. I think the second paradigm, and I don't think it's useful, and I think deep and dilute, don't dilute is a counter to that. And I think the second sort of paradigm um, that is very easy to get is that when you have a concept, you must simplify it, scale it, and, and that, that will be your financial success. And I think p- but both of those two, uh, at one point became clear, weren't that useful. And I, I guess our journey, um, we, you know, we started restaurants and we started doing it and, and, and we did it on that basis. And, and as, as we sort of grew, we discovered that really it wasn't, it wasn't the right basis to run things. We sort of, you know, at one point discovered that th- th- there was an incident where th- th- there was a pop-up wounding on the South Bank. And uh, we were doing that pop-up for, I think it was eight or 12 weeks over the summer. It was a really nice pop-up. It was called the Dishim Chopati Beach Bar. But we, um, I think the tandoos broke because we bought cheap tandoos. And um, instead, of, instead of sort of, there was a lamb recipe of some sort. It was a, a, a kima naan or a, a frankie it was called, where we put the kima in the naan. But instead of um, discontinuing the product and saying, look, we can't make it today, um, somebody who was there uh, was very worried about the revenue and, of course, the profitability. And so went down to Tesco's, bought a bunch of buns and put the chemo in the bun and served it. And, and I, I guess that did the job. It got money in the till. But a few days later, I read a review um, in, uh, you know, from a blogger and which referenced these very charming T-shirts, which are sort of Henry Holland-type T-shirts, which said clever things like, live the chai life, Frankie goes to Bollywood. And the reviewer said, Frankie went to Bollywood and shat in a bun and he had a picture of this dish. <laughs> and and it just oh, struck wow. me that I, th- I think that the revenue and profit motive is is, is problematic um, because it, it may not get you focused on the right thing to make money. And and I think that maybe this is oblique. There's a good book called Obliquity, which I haven't read yet. But, but maybe this is a bit oblique. But I think if you chase the profit too hard, you you won't make a valuable business. And, and I guess soon after that, we formulated the principle that Really, what you needed to do was to was to go for awesome food and drink, awesome service, and a happy team. Sounds sort of trite, but three things: awesome food and drink, awesome service, a happy team. Control the costs. You know, you can't let them go out of control. Once you understood your business model, you, you, you fix the costs and you control them. And then the revenue and the profit are the applause that follow. And that was a major a major change in the way we did things. And suddenly the top line went crazy. As we did that, we found that um, customers started coming in a lot more, and the teams instead of people being sent home in the afternoon because the labor costs were too high or there weren't any customers. Uh, and instead of uh, negotiating the price of lamb chops every couple of weeks, focus on the quality of the experience. And of course, the best way to low costs is, is high revenues. And and I guess from then on, that morphed into deepen, don't dilute, make it better all the time, really focus on those things, um, even as you scale. Um I, I think that was about 2012, 2013, um, when we really understood that. And I think that the revenues then um, increased dramatically.
0: That's really interesting. And that that example, uh, albeit just a single example of how the experience was diluted massively by having to respond to that problem, which had arisen, is so interesting. But then I guess that makes me think, how do you, with this principle of deep and don't dilute with a growing business, once the business has grown, how do you reinforce that? And how do you try and bring everybody together at De on this journey and buying into that same principle?
1: It's 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 a really good question. I guess one of my jobs is to articulate some principles and then just repeat it the whole time. So a lot of what I do is repeating things. <laughs> um, but but um, I, I I think maybe there's a three stage process. You, you you have to you, you think deeply about what you believe in business and what's working for you. And in this particular case, it was it was not jettisoning the P&L, but it was re understanding the P&L. But the point of the PL, the point of, like especially in consumer businesses, and maybe this is true of any business, I don't know. But, but if you really, really focus on the quality of what you're doing, care about what you're doing. If you're a basketball player, you don't focus on the scoreboard, you focus on shooting baskets. The scoreboard is a result of good work. And I think that find your way of articulating that. And, and for us, it was this phrase, "Deep and don't dilute. We, we also uh, came up with something else we really cared about, which is this principle called SEVA, which is selfless service. So, so to do something with selfless service um, is to do something with, with big heart to generosity and to the very best of your ability. And we call it big heart and first class. And, and we sort of be, thought very hard about those principles and how they apply to what we're doing and our business model and the charity that we do um, and, and so forth. And once we articulated that, so I guess the first step is to understand it. The second step is to really articulate it. And the third step is to just repeat. And, and that's what we do. We train it in, we talk about it, we repeat it. And, and, and I, maybe there's a, a fourth thing, which is to try and stay true to what you're doing. And I, I think that that's sort of how you do it. And I, I always think of business as um, once you've set your business model and your strategy, which are two very important things, um, you've only got two levers to pull. One is process and one is culture. And in a way, maybe this is a process that we've, we've just sort of talked about, which really embeds and, and strengthens your culture. But you've got to keep an eye on both all the time. It's just always process and culture. There's levers that you pull to do things.
0: Mm. And it's your, your reflection on, as you say, your, your sort of formal business training and, and consultancy background. Is it the culture element, which perhaps still isn't reflected very much in that type of education?
1: I, I, I don't know. We did a lot of work on culture. So we did, we did a lot of the theory and thinking. And, um, you know, I I can't say, I, th- I think there's an, an enormous value in, in those experiences and, and the education, but m- maybe I would say it this way. I don't think they're very good masters. They're very good tools, very good slaves, but all, all, of, all of that stuff is good to marshal to the p- pursuit of something, but that something isn't going to be coming out of a spreadsheet or a PNL. and I And I, I think for me in business, you've got to have an itch. You've got to have a feeling. You've got to want to do something which is beyond the, beyond the profit and loss to, to make a really truly valuable profit and loss um, which is something that I don't think they're teaching um, and and, and that, that that is outside the, the sort of paradigm of, of sort of p and scaling and exiting and all of that wisdom that you, you might you might have and, and maybe things have changed but and I think it also speaks to an emotional connection with people and, and a sort of maybe I could call it poetry we think a lot about how we, we can be poetic in what we do how we can take a piece of poetry and, and sort of turn it into something um, that people might want to uh, enjoy, but all all of that stuff is, is slightly missing. I think. I think once once you understand, once you've got that, then I think those tools are very useful. So then you need cost control. Then you need KPIs. Then then you need dashboards, and you need to learn how to make processes. So so I, I wouldn't negate the value of all of that stuff.
0: Hi there. I hope you're finding the show interesting so far. Just a quick interruption to invite you to join the Journey Further Book Club. This is our learning community designed for time pressured marketers. Where we read the best business books and share bite-sized insight from every chapter to help you get ahead at work. Just go to journeyfurther.com and follow the book club link to sign up. So, I guess to give people who might not have um, heard of or experienced Deshume a bit of background, can you talk a bit about where you first found that why with Deshume, where you first had that that spark and thought, I want to I want to create something special here.
1: I think that, um, for me, one of the most important things is to, is to place food in its proper cultural context. So, so you know, a, a very simple insight, can't even call it an insight, just an observation is that uh, there were sort of good curry houses and there was good high-end Indian food you know, back in 2789. And, and um, you know, Banaras is very expensive, but very wonderful. And curry houses are very inexpensive, um, but they are a particular genre. And I'm a great big fan of the city of Bombay, and I love our culture and history. And um, my grandmother and grandfather lived there for years. I used to go back and see them a lot as a child. And and for me, there was something that needed to be said there about that specific cultural context of Bombay. And uh, the food there is very different. Um, If if you and I were eating on the street, uh, we would both be standing in a queue next to the, the the medan there with all the gothic buildings which is a big field in Bombay in South Bombay all the gothic buildings we'll be queuing outside a, a of our stall and the varapa is a, is a fried potato patty in a bun it would be hot and we'd both be sweating and there'd be some people in the queue behind us and in front of us there'd be a, a, a street urchin hassling us and a couple of dogs around the noise of the beeping and cricket on the field and uh you know the sort of palm trees it's, it's brilliant there and, th- and then you then you get the piece of food from the the seller, the varapau and you'd bite into it and there's chili and it's too hot for you to eat it burns your mouth and then you have some chai it burns your mouth more but what a wonderful sensation and and i, I somehow want to capture some of that cultural context now, i can't literally take you there i mean you'd have to get an airplane ticket we could get there but 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 something of what we do is is to tr- try and transport you to something now, of course our version of culture is very subjective it's just my understanding of the culture and we take this idea of the Irani cafes and we use that to riff on the history and the culture of Bombay and create an environment which is heavily referential of, of, of all those bits and pieces and, and bring it right back to Bombay in, in, in a way that references the origin city very significantly. Um, and, and for us, I, I guess that references back to poetry as well. For me, that's a very poetic exercise to think about all this homage. But I guess that's what we try and do.
0: These Irani cafes, can you describe a bit more of this, this, this type of place and I guess what it means to you and the, and the culture of the city?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think, and, and this this touches maybe on, on a, a mission that is very deep for us as well, and may, maybe even deeper than the deep and don't dilute. <laughs> but, um, well, we, we came across this very thin but rich, deep seam of heritage, the Iranian cafes. And I should say we re-came across it because I had been to one when I was a year old, um, which I might come back to. But um, their cafes that were set up by immigrants from Iran to Bombay in the early 20th century from religious persecution, their religion was Zoroastrianism. And they came to Bombay. And for whatever reason they set up these cafes around the city and by the 1960s there were 400 of these places um, now they've all gone there's only 20 left which is which is a great sadness but, but they were wonderful spaces very romantic and everyone has sort of treasured memories of them they um, y- you would see marble tables and bentwood chairs from Czechoslovakia and you know sort of marble tiles and sort of wood panelling and sepia portraits and, and the fans that sort of stirred the air gently and they were places that because the Iranis were outsiders they had to let everybody in. And we were very inspired by these places. And what what I suppose was most inspiring, the aesthetic is beautiful, the food is very interesting. Um, And what was most inspiring though, is is the way that Irani cafes used to have to let everybody in. They were really true melting pots where uh, you would find a lawyer next to a taxi while next to a prostitute. prostitutes were famously unwelcome everywhere else, except for these places. Uh, Families would dine there. They were the first places that you and I, as sort of common people, would be able to eat out. and it, it was a sort of lovely idea that through eating you could bring people together and break down barriers. And in fact, my my personal history is that my family were refugees. Um, in 1972, we were thrown out of Uganda. I was six months old, and we came to India. I was actually state. I didn't have a passport, um, and we came to India. My mother and I. And my first birthday was in one of these Rani cafes. You know, when I was sort of uh, literally, I didn't know it, but I guess I was. You know, we were seeking refuge. We were trying to find somewhere safe, but. Um, that, that was my first birthday and I think in a way um, if, if there's something that for me is extremely important um, as I said I mean I think m- maybe even more important personally than the deep and Ali is that breaking that idea of breaking down barriers over food and what's interesting about Bombay and Irani cafe culture is that um, Bombay in the 19 uh, 20th century, late 19th century it was famously a cosmopolitan place, people used to mix significantly and when 1947 happened, um, when independence was achieved by India and partition happened, when Dickey Mountbatten took the British out very, very quickly in slightly indecent haste, millions of people killed each other across borders, across journeys. And um, in in Bombay, the memories of independence are significantly less bloodstained than Calcutta and Delhi. And of course, part of this is geographic because of Delhi's location next to Punjab and um, Calcutta in Bengal. but But part of it was also to do with the cosmopolitan culture of Bombay um and and part of that was due to shared spaces like chopati beach like the irani cafes where people mixed and and for me this is a very very deep belief that we need to celebrate each other's differences we need to listen to each other we need to um we, we need to have people come together and break down barriers and that's really really cool to to, to shim's mission as well um and, and I, guess, I guess it's less of a business philosophy than a, a sort of maybe a um, you know I a, a, a guess a, some sort of noble purpose we find it not always easy to do but that drives a lot of what we think about as well.
0: And as you describe the history and the culture runs so so deep how do you then take on this challenge of trying to tell that story through something like Dishun because like the more you reflect on it the more you're like wow there is so much at stake in telling this story like you want to tell it authentically where do you where where, where do you start on that journey yourself
1: it's a good question I I, I don't know if I know the answer um, I, I think we do two things to express this thing that is in us um, and and I, I might start with with one that is more to do with the breaking down barriers which is that and to honor this idea this ethos that it is important to build a cosmopolitan culture as the irani cafes did we we take very seriously the idea that we should be breaking down barriers not only in the restaurants but in other ways as well and obviously with corona it's harder because these are you know we're having barriers erected all around and you know for probably perfectly decent public health reasons but um, you know, in our restaurants, I'm proud that Dushyuma is probably one of the few restaurants that you might see some students who are enjoying the chai that gets topped up for free all day next to, you know, an Ambani or a mithil or some other sort of billionaire. And, and you do truly get that. You get celebs next to regular folks. I think we made mm-hmm. Nicole Schertzinger wait in the queue for an hour once <laughs> um, before we realised <laughs> who she was. I think by that time she got into the front of the queue. But look, that, that's what we do. I think they, they've done it to quite a few people um, where we, we sort of make everyone wait together. But, um and, and even, even the food on our table, we bring from different pedigrees. So our food on our table is referenced very closely to dishes that we eat in Bombay, but very Muslim dishes, very Hindu dishes, all jostle together and rub shoulders together, which is unusual. But I think it's our religious festivals are a big deal as well. We, we celebrate uh, Diwali, Eid. We even do Christmas carols every year. Um, for Eid, for example, we took over Diner Rock. We've done it um, for years, but we took over a couple of years ago when we were allowed to do it last year. Um, Dinarama in Shoreditch, which is a very hip space, yeah. and and in a way, I suppose, quite a white space. I, I don't think that's overreach. It's quite a hip, cool space, but it's not a very sort of ethnic space. And we yeah, we, agree. We, we took it over as a, as a as an Eid festival. I'm a Hindu. I'm not a Muslim, but and we had alcohol free, and we had halal food, and I, I we had Hindu uh, sorry, Eid spoken word and and poetry and music there. And I think at least out of the thousand people who came there, half of them were not Muslim. And that's really cool. That's a really good way to to tell a story, to bring people together, to celebrate culture, which which means that next time some idiot, you know, plants a bomb somewhere, you know, I, j- just because we've we've understood each other, we've talked about each other, we've celebrated each other's differences, we've actually come together to celebrate each other's festivals. I think it makes things like backlash are smaller. It brings people together. We desperately need that in society, and I think particularly. You know, who knows what journey we're on post-corona, where there will be economic damage. Um, you know, people will be frustrated and upset. There's anger in the air. You know, we really don't know what the uh, economic and political consequences of corona are. But one thing I do know is that it's more important than ever to bring people together rather than prise them apart. Um, and, and I think that's that's really, really cool to what we do. We do we do more of that stuff as well, but I'll uh, I'll stop rambling because I'm talking a lot about it.
0: <laughs> no, that's really interesting there. And I, and I guess my, my reflection on it is that Yeah, there's critics all around, but when you do things like, as you describe, putting on these festivals or writing and releasing your book and those examples as well, when you go so deep and invest so much in telling those stories, it's hard to challenge how much they mean and how authentic that stuff really is.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I suppose so. I mean, like we, we just work on it beyond the commercial. So so again, maybe it's the principle of deep and don't dilute or focus on the quality of it. But for me, I guess you wouldn't do this if it was just for the money, right? If, if you were just trying to do it for commercial reasons, if we wanted to do an ETH festival for commercial reasons, it wouldn't be the same and it would be rubbish and you wouldn't enjoy it anyway. And we, we do it because we do it. And if a byproduct of that is is that it, it generates sort of more awareness of what we do and we get to tell our stories, then then all very well. And, and there are lots and lots of examples of that. I mean, maybe in the restaurant designs. Um, I mean, every time we build a restaurant, I write a story, a sort of narrative, a riff on an Iranian cafe idea, you know, sort of fiction. We sort of imagine it a fictional cafe and we always place it. because I love history. So we always place it in a specific historical context in Bombay, whether it's the Jazz Age or the rock scene of the 60s or or in fact the independence um, movement of the 1930s and 40s. Um, and and we then write that story, and then we build that story, and and many 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 of the details that um, are in the restaurants are just lost on people. But we do it because we love it. <laughs> so so mm. in a way, you know, whether someone challenges it or not, we sort of do it. This is who we are. Uh, and if you if you peel under the skin, if you peel that layer off, you, you'll see more. And if you peel, you'll see more. Um, I think literally every single design theater has some reference um from back in back in Bombay when we spent you know, days taking photographs of frankly hinges.
0: Because it, I, I guess with people who might say to you, like, why don't you have 30 restaurants by now? Like, this seems amazing. Like, why why only a sort of a fairly limited number? I guess you couldn't take that process at scale. It would be impossible.
1: No, and I think deep and don't dilute is a principle that creates a bottleneck. Um and you and you're quite right, we just couldn't do it. We can squeeze out about a restaurant a year um you know if, if we work hard on it and and the, the you know we'll write the story we'll go to bombay to research it we'll take all the photographs we'll then design it we'll then source the furniture from that period uh you know that that, that, that will really bring that alive and then we'll build a restaurant and that takes time it takes a year and i think that we couldn't we just genuinely couldn't do couldn't do that much of it and i think anyway um if you're trying to scale a business there's as a, as a friend of ours called jane melvin who uh was a sort of uh, Worked for many years at Leo Burnett, and then was at, it was an international marketing director at Starbucks with Howard Schultz some time ago. And she she I remember asking her once. Um, I said, Jane, can can you can you scale and have quality? Because I was thinking about this because we really wanted to keep quality, and we thought, well, perhaps we can have a sizable business as well. I'm not sure, but the quality was definitely much more important. And 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 I said, Jane, can we have scale and can we have quality? She says, Well, will pick th- pick two of these three things. These things are speed, quality, and scale. You can have two. <laughs> so so you can i guess you can get high quality fast you can get big fast but then you won't have high quality but you can't have high quality size quickly it just doesn't work um and i i guess my, my belief is it we'll just we'll slow things down and eventually we'll we'll get somewhere but we're in we're in no hurry to to you know create a massive corporation
0: no and I guess you, you touched a little bit on the the effect of coronavirus, the fabulous work you've done in terms of like charity work. It's now the case that actually the hospitality industry itself requires some love, some some charity. Has it has what's happened or what is happening? Has it changed your plans at all, or is it very much as you say, trying to bring yourself back to that core principle still?
1: I think our core principles are our core principles. I think that. That that value of deep and don't dilute still stays. The charity work we do, which you mentioned, I think we've fed now eight million children. We do a meal for a meal thing. Uh, we feed kids in India and in the UK. Still stays. All of that still stays. I think you know. We, we, sure, we, we've taken quite a big knock. Um, I can't tell you that the last six months have been easy, and the next six months I think might be perhaps harder still. But I think we'll we'll make it through. We'll survive. We'll navigate through. Um, but certainly our ambitions will have taken a knock. Um, we we've probably will be slowed down by a year or two. Not that speed is important, but, you know, stuff that we were thinking of doing, we might not do. Um, and I mean, mm-hmm. an, an example is we were thinking about perhaps looking at the US. I'm quite excited about the US. I, I, I'm very interested in New York. Um, having spent time there, I, I love the culture, notwithstanding what's happening politically there, but and November will be interesting. We'll have to see what, what does happen there. But, uh, you know, I have a great respect. And I think, I think it's we can really communicate India and Indian food there. But I think our plans will probably go back a couple of years. But look, it's, it's, it's okay. This stuff happens in business and, and uh, you take knocks. I don't think any business is ever easy. Um, we, had a, uh, we had a good path for 10 years. This is difficult. and you know, I, I, Our industry is, is suffering greatly, but we'll have to see what we can do to navigate through.
0: That's exciting about uh, New York and the thought around that. I imagine you haven't written the story yet of what that restaurant could, could be. But obviously a lot of the stories that are told in the restaurant's in the uk are very reliant on this connection between british culture and the indian culture and the, the crossovers in between where does that sit for a an american it's a restaurant? really good question
1: I, I don't know i haven't haven't thought of the answer yet <laughs> We'll have to, have to crack that when we get there um i mean in a way also that the not all the stories rely on britain i suppose there is a background context of of the history of uh you know the relationship between britain and india which is you know, which start by, started back in the 17th century. I've been reading quite a lot about that recently. But but I, I I think it'll be interesting just to take the idea of New York and Bombay as quite interesting and related cities. I feel very similar to me. The bustle in each is the same. And and both of those have in common, I think, a sort of uh, a, a busyness and a vibe and an attitude, which London possibly lacks. So I, I think we'll probably explore that. Um, mm-hmm. Bombay is a great financial centre too, as is New York. Um, might, might explore that. There's some funny financial stories. I'd, I'd love to create a story of a. financial swindler (laughs) that'll be fun (laughs) He's also an irani cafe owner
0: (laughs) i guess and there's there's interesting dynamics in the different eras of the cities as you say like how how do you reflect on what bombay is like now versus what it was like in the various parts of the of the 20th century
1: i mean but bombay has changed and it hasn't as well so i mean what's what's quite nice about the city is it you know, parts of the city have very, very much modernized, but there's a whole part of South Bombay which hasn't modernized, um, and I, I guess it's probably because of the inefficiency, because of rent controls, etc. And um, this, this is a bit of a tangent, but I might go on it anyway if, if you don't mind. But please do. Um, but Bomb- Bombay is a city which is surrounded by water on three sides, and and it sort of is a big pendant to land, like Manhattan, except without the bridges uh, to relieve the pressure, and and so property prices have. They've gotten higher and higher and higher as things have gone down. But South Bombay is um, like a heritage area. It's, it's all very old buildings. It's very protected, very rent controlled. And the inefficiency means that lots of little nooks and crannies, little interstices are sort of protected from the big commercial tide. I think that's an analogy that may work. Yeah. So if you've got a big commercial tide <laughs> coming through, all these little things are protected in these spaces by these regulations and so forth. So So while Bombay is modernizing, and sadly, Iranian cafes are dying and things are changing. All of the stuff that we're very interested in celebrate does disappear, but a lot of it is still there. So when we do think about a restaurant that in our minds is set in the 1960s, we can we can go around and, and see a lot of the buildings that were built around then and, and see a lot of the interiors that were, were from then. And, and so they do coexist very nicely together. Inevitably. You know, as with any sort of form of coastal erosion, the big tide of you know eventually might take over. But, but for now it's it's very beautiful and you can go to South Bombay. And in fact, the book, I suppose, is, is a tour of South Bombay with us and, and showing you all of our favorite places. And I think in the book we also uh, talk about the fact that they may not remain. Um, there's one place we love going, uh, which is uh, Muhammad Ali Road around there. the very Muslim areas where we eat a lot there. and that's all been I think it's being torn down now as we speak. Uh, and reconstructed and and not entirely for bad reasons it's somebody who's trying to improve the quality of life there it's a co-op association and and uh you know they're they're rebuilding the area into much better flats but it won't be anywhere near as romantic or as beautiful as 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 what we've now seen so that's disappearing but but nonetheless you know if we were there now i'd take you on a good tour of some of these beautiful places that have just stayed there and been there for for, in some cases centuries
0: when you you identify these different places in Bombay and you try and identify the various things which you can then reflect in in your restaurants. I guess how do you how do you know or how do you measure when you've done a good job at it? How how do you reflect back and go I'm I'm so pleased with the job that we've done opening edinburgh because it tells the story in in the way that we want to how do you know you've you've been successful if that's
1: no it's a fair question i think there's two things one is that you go in there and there's a point at which we all look at each other as a team and smile and say yes we've got it right and it's only once we've set the lighting started the training they got the teams and it's sort of it's launched you know it may not be fully launched but there's sort of a buzz and there's atmosphere and there's guests in there and they're eating and there's bread coming out of the tandoor and people doing rumali rotis and runners running around with food and so forth and 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 then you just feel it you're like okay we've got it right and it's only when you set the restaurant properly and made it look beautiful that, that you get that feeling and i think the second thing is that uh, in, in indians from india love what we do still and you know I, I still hear stories of friends who come from india or friends of friends who come from india who insist on going to Dushim straight away they come from Bombay and I, I I don't really understand this because the food in Bombay is really very good and and yet they will come here and go and maybe it's because we have all the food under one roof or maybe it's because of the vibe that we create which might be different but I, I take that as a great compliment um, and they will relate to the way we think about the, the city and, and its architecture and the culture and I think, I think they appreciate some of the nuance uh, which people here might not consciously see but, but might enjoy in terms of the quality of the feel of the restaurant but that's important as well.
0: I've just got three um three final questions to ask you, Shamil. The first one, what did you used to believe that you no longer believe in?
1: That's a simple answer. Is it I, I used to believe that the point of business was profit. And now I know that the point of business is 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 creating a fantastic emotional relationship with your customer and your employee. You know, looking after those two things, look after your guests, look after your employees. And as long as you control your costs, the profit and the revenue, the revenue, and then the profit will, will come. But I think it's a, it's a flipped paradigm. It, it is quite a big difference. It feels subtle as I say it now, but it is quite a big difference.
0: A side question. Um, I guess, are there any other businesses you look to who you uh, like, who you admire for for also trying to pursue that approach?
1: I, I think in a cliched way, I, I, I don't know whether that, that exists now as a business, but you've got the sense that Apple pursued quality over the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly when johnny Ive did a speech about the edge of a macbook pro you know you, you knew that he cared about the edge not because of money but because he cared about the edge he didn't he wasn't thinking about the market cap of apple and he, and he really wasn't um you know maybe other people were but johnny Ive wasn't um I, i've spent a bit of time with um the, the chap lovely chap who started Rafa recently yes. I, I think for example he cares deeply about cycling you know way beyond the money like our simon mottram and 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 when you go to a Rafa store uh, you read the books that they've put out, you know, there's something here which is way beyond the commercial, they don't need to do all that stuff, and they do anyway. And and for me, that makes a really, really great brand. Um, I think that those are the two that I'd think of off the top of my head that really, really are into you some, know something beyond you know j- j- just j- just just the PL. I mean, in in our industry, I think Hawksmore is like that, mm. uh, and they they really really care about the food and, and the service and the steak, that's very very important. And I think Will always says two principles he says, be kind. and work hard and he really means that he cares about that stuff and I think he believes then that if you do those things you make great stake great service then, then profitability will follow so I, I respect Will enormously I,
0: I think Rafa's a, a great example my, my, uh, my, my girlfriend's brother works in the Soho Rafa shop I'm not a cyclist right, yeah. but I, whenever I go yeah. in there just to get a coffee or something I, you, can, you can see that there's, there's something really big there that a, a cycling community are really buying into beyond just buying their products I guess you'd have to buy into it quite a lot anyway because it's not a <laughs> you could spend a lot less on cycling gear so there is, some, there, yes, is, there, is not cheap. there is something special going on there um secondly Shamal, if this wasn't your mission uh what would be
1: i I, I think um I, I often think about this idea of breaking down barriers and if if we weren't in business doing it or like if, if deep and dilute deep and don't dilute wasn't a thing that we were trying to do in business I, I would be very interested in doing something else which work to break down barriers, got people to really listen to each other. I think it's more and more important as, uh, you know, th- things are going to get difficult in the next few years. I think already we're seeing, um, you know, anger bubbling over on, on sort of both sides of the political spectrum. But I think the most important thing is for us all to listen to each other and, and come together and respect each other's points of view. And we could just then disagree with each other. But th- there is a, a thing there, which is that we, we need to break down barriers before we engage with each other or as we engage with each other.
0: And finally, if you could recommend one book for members of the Journey Further Book Club to read, what would it be?
1: I, I I thought about this one. I've had quite a few. I was going to recommend Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell, which is amazing. But I, I'm not mm-hmm. going to do it because It's not a business book. Um, but uh, it's, it's a really, really good, written in an enormously clever structure, which spans four or five different time periods. Um, but so I recommend Cloud Atlas as a plug for that, for no other reason than it's beautiful and poetic and quite inspirational. But the business book I think I'd recommend, which was very relevant, is a book called The Whole New Mind by Daniel Pink, which I wonder if it's even not dated now, but it may just be orthodoxy. But back then it felt very interesting that what Daniel Pink argued was that um, accounting, uh, you know, MBA type training, etc., was was now becoming a commodity. We had so much abundance um, and, and you know, humans could choose from so many different things that what was really going to differentiate was things like design, storytelling. Uh, plugging into the, um, I guess, the right brain rather than the left brain, and and I guess he was advocating a whole brain business approach, um, and and to use your sort of emotions and your storytelling and your your thinking, your non-linear thinking, to bring that to bear in, in business, um, and probably a plug for emotional intelligence as well as IQ. So so that was, that that was a really uh, important book for me because I think it laid the basis for me to. I started getting into typefaces. I got very excited about typefaces about design. I discovered a film called Objectified by um, I think it's called Gary Hustwit, which is an amazing documentary which I still recommend but it sort of opened me up to very very different aspects of, of the world and, and then ultimately they were very useful in business as well uh, so I'd recommend that. A Whole New Mind by Daniel Pink and it it helped me um, do my re-education as, a, as an MBA and ex-management consultant
0: <laughs> Wow thank you now I'll be sure to pass that recommendation on Shamil it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you finding out more about your story and Dishum
1: you too Nathan I've enjoyed it very
0: much There we have it. Shamil is such an interesting guy. I loved speaking with him. If you've not been to a Dishune before, I would highly recommend going and do also check out their cookbook from Bombay with Love. It is fantastic. If you were to leave a rating or a review in your podcast app, that would make me very, very happy. We have some great episodes coming up over the next few weeks, including Seth Godin. I'm speaking to Giles from What Three Words, and I'm also speaking to a really exciting brewery who are on a mission to save the world with their beer. Just click subscribe and you'll be the first to receive those
1: every single Tuesday morning. See you soon.